though the press for more and more oil goes on, there is a realistic, doable green alternative. And its leader is coming out of Colombia, believe it or not. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. For at least five centuries, various mainly European nations have strived to dominate the known world, employing various means, virtually all strictly military. The common goal of the competitors has been wealth. It's always for Mm -hmm. us and not for you. At the bottom of this ugly, generally bloody struggle is an assumption of shortage. There's not enough to go around. And today, as population swells dramatically, the demand for essential, increasingly rare resources intensifies. Think about this. In the two world wars, aside from a constant race to find and dig up the iron ore needed to make steel to churn out the weapons, oil was even more crucial to the regimes at war with each other. Russia, Germany, Britain, France, and the U.S. based their war strategies around locating and securing the petroleum required to keep their war machines going. And though we have a new, not crazy, head of government, (laughs) Joe Biden remains captive of this drive for more oil. It seems in spite of the recent United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change exceptionally alarming report, on how close to the edge of no return humanity now is, though exciting and new opportunities to get off the well-worn old path of destructive global warming, President Biden abandoned his promise to not allow new oil drilling on federal lands. He gave the go-ahead to something called the Willow Project, granting very profitable oil giant ConocoPhillips the right to drill huge amounts of oil in Alaska. And so far, at this point in their presidencies, believe it or not, Biden has granted a few more oil leases than Donald Trump had. Of course, the environmental threat is much more dire in countries in the global south. One way of dealing with their debt to the big European lending institutions is for those countries to keep drilling, but socialize the profits. That may be beneficial in the short term, but there is one exception who is turning not so exclusively uh, to the traditional methods of the Marxist so-called pink wave in South America. But today, our returning guest on Keeping Democracy Alive, John Pfeffer, calls our attention to what he sees as a shift from pink to green in Latin America. Uh, Not so much socialist, but green, environmental. And this new person, this new leader is Gustavo Petro, the new leader of Colombia. Thank you so much for being back with us, John Pfeffer. Thank you for having me back on the show. Well, though we we haven't heard of this Gustavo Petro here in the North America, he may actually be an important new world leader. You give a strong argument as to why we in the U.S. should do all we can to support him. In case you don't remember, John Pfeffer is director of the Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Far, uh, Policy Studies. Uh, Far, Frostlands, a dispatch book's original, is volume two of his Splinterlands series, and the final novel in, in the trilogy is Songlands. 
He's also written right across the world, the global networking of the far right and left response. <laughs> Fun stuff. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Um, this Gustavo Petro is said to be Colombia's first ever left-wing president. Who is Gustavo Petro, and what's his background? When did he come to power? Well, he just came to power uh, last year, um, at least as the president of Colombia, but he's been on the political scene in Colombia for a long time. He's run for president several times. He uh, was the mayor of the capital city. Uh, he is, uh, if you go back a little further in time, when he was quite young, uh, only 17 years old, he participated in one of the left-wing um, guerrilla movements ah. uh, in Colombia. And But since that time, he kind of migrated into politics, uh, became associated with the kind of premier left-wing party, but then went on to found his own party. Uh, and that was the vehicle that... Uh, that he used to to run to be the the mayor of Bogota, um, and you know he has uh, kind of established himself uh, as a kind of new type of leader in Colombia, not just um, left wing, but really one of the first kind of environmentalists to to uh, be at the helm of power in the country. Boy, it seems like being an environmentalist when. The country has a lot of poor people, and there's been this pink wave uh, that we will talk about throughout much of Latin America, the idea being to socialize the profits and not have them just go to, you know, somebody like uh, Conoco, you know, or, or some, some American uh, uh, example, but to actually uh, spread the wealth from the oil. So that takes a lot of, uh, dare I say, chutzpah to do that. And he, he, he is not alone in, that's a Spanish word, uh, he's not alone in power in Colombia. Tell us, please, about Vice President Francia Marquez. Sure. Well, Francia Marquez is a, is a longtime environmental activist, a winner of the Goldman Prize, which is kind of the, the premier prize for environmentalists around the world. She was very active in um, fighting against uh, illegal mining uh, of gold uh, in the country, in her community. Oh. And she's been also a, a very passionate defender of the rights of Afro-Colombians uh, in the country. And she, you know, had had spent some time criticizing uh, Gustavo Petro for, you know, not fulfilling his promises to um, to diversify the leadership of uh, left-wing parties. And in response, he actually did. Uh, did just that. Uh, he kind of asked one of the white legislators to step down to make room for uh, someone of uh, of Afro-Colombian descent to to take their place. And then, of course, when a position opened up for a running mate, he immediately uh, asked her to to join him on the ticket, and she. Uh, cements uh, the reputation of this new government mm. as really a green government. Well, what, what, what's her background? Why is she, uh, what's her uh, green credentials? Well, she has uh, done a lot of work in her community to kind of lift up the rights of communities that have been affected by uh, mining, uh, in, in particular gold mining. 
And uh, for instance, she was famous for leading a march to Bogota with, uh, with members of the community to highlight this issue, to bring it to the forefront. Because, you know, like many other countries, uh, Colombia has a significant non-white population and has not uh, largely um, uh, put to the fore the issues of this community. And so it is incumbent upon uh, activists like uh, Francia Marquez to say, hey, look, you know, we are here. We're not going anywhere. Uh, we demand our rights and we demand, you know, to be represented in the highest uh, realms of politics. Wow, interesting. I'd sure I'd love to go to Colombia someday. It's it's a very uh, exciting place. It's uh, right there at at the top of uh, South America if you look at the map, and uh, you know, of course, to the right as you look at the map uh, is uh, Venezuela, and you know, Latin American left. Uh, this pink wave has long favored more mining and drilling to address the burden of uh that that they face they i mean as you point out virtually all the global south Colombia, Colombia has been forced to extract more resources just to pay the never-ending bills from the international banks the u.s itself has a huge debt to the international lenders imagine what it is in these uh, uh countries with much less wealth uh, how much of the Latin American government's revenue currently go toward just servicing the debt to institutions like the World Bank and IMF? And how can they not do what uh, Venezuela's uh, Chavez did, which is to, uh, you know, socialize uh, the, the the burden and and to, uh, you know, take take the, uh, the the profits from the uh, mining that's going on. Well, the the percentage of government revenues depends uh, from country to country, or varies from country to country. For instance, in Colombia, it's uh, as much as thirty percent, or one third of all government revenues go to paying off the interest on the debt. Um, and elsewhere, it ranges from you know fifteen to thirty uh, percent, depending again on the country. Um, a number of countries are in debt distress. Uh, in other words, yeah. they have come close to the verge of default. Uh, Argentina in 2020, mm. um, Costa Rica. Uh, the, obviously, COVID complicated matters, mm. um, putting a great strain on the finances of these governments. At the same time, there was some uh, debt, uh, or at least uh, extension of deadlines during the COVID period. But now that the COVID period is well, largely over, um, the debts have kind of, the, the clock, wow. so to speak, has gone back to ticking on, oh, on the debt. So it's put a, a lot of pressure on these governments, and not just in Latin America, of course, around the world. Yeah. Uh, and there hasn't really been a kind of concerted effort by the richer countries to address this debt problem. Why should they? They're making a help, uh, heck of a profit. Yeah, and Venezuela nationalized oil, uh, profits, at least in theory, to be spread equitably to the populace. And Colombia, no doubt, sits on top of a similar oil supply. Your article mentions state-owned Ecopetrol. Tell us, please, about their relations with this uh, new green Gustavo Petro. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, Colombia, the government, controls almost about 90% of the shares in uh, Ecopetrol, and the rest uh, are traded um, on stock exchanges around the world. Um, In general, the company has been run independently of government control. In other words, the government does, you know, profit uh, as any shareholder would profit, uh, majority uh, shareholder from the revenues of the company. Um, but it hasn't been heavy-handed in, in its approach. Petro has basically said, look, you as a company have to shift over to clean energy basically tomorrow. And the response of the company has been, well, look, this is this is hard to do. Can't do it from one day to the next. We've already, you know, kind of shifted over some of our operations. We're the largest producer of clean energy in in the country. But what you're asking us to do is just impossible. I mean, there's a lot tied up, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of jobs, um, a lot of foreign contracts tied up in the the operations of, of our fossil fuel division. I mean, you know, basically, if we're talking uh, oil and uh, and coal and mining, those three sectors, basically that's that's half of uh, Colombia's uh, revenues, revenue streams. And we're talking a lot of money tied up in this. Um, what will probably happen is some kind of a compromise in which uh, Petro won't get, you know, his desire to see, you know, fossil fuel infra- uh, infrastructure change over from one day to the next yeah. to clean energy infrastructure. But uh, the the on the on the uh, oil company side, it's not going to be as slow as they would like. You know. The, the head of Ecopetrol, who just stepped down recently, said, look, you know, we need time to do this. But the answer is, frankly, we don't have time. The yeah. world does not have time for this. So you're going to have to, your successor is going to have to uh, speed things up considerably. Wow. That's a, a heck of an assignment to, uh, to, to, to do that. And I, I have heard the phrase fairly often, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Well... For a long time, Latin American countries have been literally digging more and more for the oil, for the coal, for the gold, uh, and, and now uh, for lithium, which is used uh, for batteries. And you know, people think uh, driving an electric vehicle, uh, you know, is all that great for the environment. Well, think again. You say for decades, Latin American countries have tried to dig themselves out of poverty, and and that. Uh, um, that instead of beginning to catch up to the north, uh, the global south has fallen ever, ever further behind. So there have been years of steady efforts by progressive left-wing politicians. What, what explains this? Why, why, why has it not worked? It's a tough question. I mean, your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware of the, the long history of extractive uh, policies in Latin America, going back, of course, to colonialism and the efforts by Spain and Portugal to take as much out of the continent as possible, the so-called open veins of Latin America, um, the, yeah. the silver, the tin, everything uh, mined to the point of exhaustion. Um, when countries in Latin America attained 
independence, they thought, okay, well, we're now in control of all of this. We're going to be able to profit from this. Sure. Um, and to a certain extent, they did. And, and uh, of course, there was a huge commodities boom in, um, the, in the 2000s, basically 2000, 2020, something like that, two decades of, of rising prices for commodities. And a lot of that was spurred by the growth of China. China, an mm. enormous consumer of raw materials. And China in 2020 uh, basically imported about 1% of all that Latin America was producing. Um, 20 years later, it was up to 15%. So that's an incredible wow. increase of, of China's kind of uh, extraction of material out of Latin America. Now, by some measures, of course, Latin America has prospered a great deal. I mean, sure. if you look at, you know, uh, certain countries have, do have done quite well. And even to a certain extent, there's been uh, that prosperity has been spread out a bit. I mean, if you look at Brazil, uh, under the policies of Lula, for instance, who instituted his famous Bolsa, which were direct cash payments to poor um, poor families, mm -hmm. that lifted an enormous number of people out of poverty. And a lot of those revenues that were distributed, of course, came from uh, the commodity boom, from the selling of uh, of both raw materials uh, for manufacturing, but also for food, of course, soy, soybeans, for instance. Um, but you know, if if you look at what uh, where Latin America was in relationship to the G seven countries, the seven most mm -hmm. powerful economies in the world, back in in uh, the twenty in twenty twenty or shortly before twenty twenty. Um, the Latin America was roughly about uh, 46% or so of uh, the living standard and was about 46 or so percent of what you would find in, in the G7. Um, that's kind of per capita GDP. Um, but so at the time, people were outraged and we're only we're not even halfway to the living standard you mm -hmm. find in the G7 countries. We got to do better. And, you know, so then you had this commodity boom. You had, you know, both neoliberal policies cutting government, but you also mm -hmm. had some left uh, left wing, you know, policies like in Brazil, like Lula's Bolsa. So you had attempts on both the left and the right to say, okay, we are going to catch up and we're going to do so by, you know, mining more things, selling more things. Um, and so you, you now look at the situation 20 years later and where is Latin America in terms of the per capita GDP of the G7 countries? Has it actually close the gap? Are they above 50%? Are they roughly the same? No, they actually have fallen. They've fallen down to 28 Jeez. or 29%, which is really kind of remarkable that after all of this uh, all of this extraction of wealth from the country, all of this growing of agribusiness products like, like soybeans and corn, all of this has taken place. And yet Latin America has fallen even further behind. Now, that doesn't mean that Latin America as a region hasn't moved forward in some respect. Obviously, certain countries have, and the region as a whole has seen growth. But if we're talking about uh, in relationship to the richer world, Latin America has fallen even further behind. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I was wondering how that worked. I, yeah, I mean, they're... they're, they're getting the resources, the resources are there, they're distributing it uh, 
more fairly, at least in theory, by the, by the pink wave. But uh, it seems that the wealthy countries are becoming even wealthier. Aha! Interesting how that works. Oh, boy, we've seen a lot of that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our returning guest is John Pfeffer, who is of uh, Foreign Policy in Focus uh, at the Institute for Policy Studies. And we're talking about uh, new leadership in Colombia that I hadn't heard of, and I, my guess is you haven't heard of. Uh, the, the the new leader is Gustavo Petro, and uh, and Lucy. Uh, what's what's her name? I'm sorry. Uh, Francia Marquez. Francia Marquez. Yes, and they are doing a shift from pink to green, and this this pink wave. It's been an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon in 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 South America, and for those of us in America, you know, North America who lean to the left, it's been uh, kind of encouraging. So. You say it's wrong to identify; it's misleading to identify Petro and Marquez uh, with as part of the pink wave. How are they offering, as you say, a different, a fundamentally different paradigm of economic development? One that's more green than pink. And how can that work, really? Well, that is a big question. How can it work? And it's not entirely clear how it will work or if it will be allowed to work, but at least in theory, here's how it goes. Um, as you mentioned, there, the left in Latin America was pretty much um, wedded to the same model of economic development uh, as, as the center and the right. In other words, uh, dig more, extract more, grow right. more, um, everything kind of based around a uh, uh, unsustainable growth yeah. paradigm. Uh -huh. And, uh, and you know, that meant that, for instance, uh -huh. uh, in in Brazil, when Lula comes back to power, what is his relationship with uh, with the national uh, oil company? Uh -huh. His relationship is we'll have more control over it so that we can pump out more oil. Um, that's basically been the approach of uh, Lopez um, Obrador in Mexico as well. Right. More control over Pemex and push it to pump out more oil. So these are kind of the traditional pink uh, leaders in Latin America. Their approach has been, you know, more extraction, more growth, more development, and we will catch up to, to the north, which, of course, as I just said, right. didn't happen over the last two decades. So what Petro and Marquez have said is, look, you know, basically our economy here in Colombia is an economy of death. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, what did they mean by that? They mean that um, Colombia's economy has been wrapped up in uh, oil and coal and natural gas, all of which are contributing to the death of the planet. Mm. And they're also, uh, it's wrapped up in uh, drugs. And Colombia is one of the leading producers uh, yes. of, uh, of narcotics uh, around the world. And this, Petro and Marquez said, this is not sustainable. Um, it's not sustainable for Colombia. It's not sustainable for the planet. We have to shift Colombia's uh, economy over to uh, clean energy, um, solar, wind. Uh, we have to find employment for workers right. in these sunset industries. We have to find employment for them in new 
uh, sustainable energy uh, and sustainable manufacturing industries. Uh, we have to avoid these so-called sacrifice zones. In other words, the zones in the country that are being sacrificed, both in terms of the environment and in terms of the people who are living in those zones, sacrificed for the quote-unquote good of the country and quote-unquote the good of, you know, the other countries through exports. We have to avoid these sacrifice zones, creating more of them. We have to uh, really close the ones that we do have. So this is a, a radically different approach to the pink approach of Lula or AMLO uh, in Mexico. This is, a, this is something that you do find hints of in other leaders in the region, primarily uh, uh -huh. Gabriel Boric in Chile. Uh -huh. um, but for the most part, I, I, I'm arguing that this is really a new paradigm of uh, political economy in the region. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big bite. My goodness. But, you know, we, it, it can't go on. And, and, and of course, you know, here in, in the United States, you got to feel for the coal miners. They, I mean, they work hard. Uh, it's, it's a tough, tough life for them. And coal is going away. It has to go away. It's terrible for the for the, for the environment, and and it's just absolutely not sustainable. So, I wonder. And and these these sacrifice zones in Chile, uh, you know, when people when people's jobs are eliminated, yikes! Something has to be done, and it's especially uh, challenging, I would think, in a in a country that. Uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of wealth. How, how, how what is uh, Gustavo Petro saying about that? Well, you know, uh, the, the truth of the matter is the countries in the region mm. do have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of um, material uh, wealth that can be um, used one way or another. Um, but the challenge is to kind of move up the value-added chain. In other words, uh, commodities don't really provide countries with a lot of value-added. You extract oil from the ground, you extract gold from the ground, you get a little bit of value-added in terms of the labor that goes into it, but there's not a lot of intellectual labor that's you know, kind of involved in the final product. So you can't market up that much. You know, mm -hmm. uh, what you pull out of the ground is sold at pretty much a commodity level around the world. Um, and that's really why Latin America uh, is in a perpetual state of underdevelopment, because it is relied on raw materials rather than on finished products or higher value added products for its economic development. Ah. So what's key for Colombia is to move up the value added chain. Um, that might mean leaving oil and gas under the ground, actually not taking it out, uh, not fracking it, not sure. taking it out from uh, from the ocean in uh, in you know drill platforms, leaving it under the ground and saying, look, we could take it out, we could get money for it, but we actually will make more money if we put our resources into other forms of economic development. It might be the IT sector. It might be, as I said, clean energy. It might be new forms of economic development that are much cleaner and much more sustainable. Wow. That's what a vision for the world. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what we need to do because we can't just keep on extracting and extracting and burning and burning. It, 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 well, we just we just can't keep doing that. Interesting, boy. It, it's a uh, 
But that shows some uh, some real vision that uh, there can be. I don't even. What is the population of Colombia? I have not a clue. It's a. It's not a small. I mean, geographically, it's a large country, and I imagine in terms of population, uh, it's a fairly big country, and they're reasonably well educated too. I believe. Uh, yes, it's very well educated, um, and you know the the population's around fifty million people or oh, so. Um, and uh, you know it is uh, it has you know the same kind of divisions you'll find elsewhere in Latin America between a wealthy, largely white elite um, and uh, and a poor um, Afro descendant population, indigenous population. Um, you know, and Colombia has a very large uh, indigenous population. And of course, mm. these sacrifice zones tend to be in the poor, uh, blacker, more indigenous regions of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's no surprise that the people who are being sacrificed are the people who have are always been sacrificed in the past. And, and that's something that, you know, the, the new government is, you know, at least in theory, very much determined to end. Fascinating. And, and certainly, I mean, you talk about uh, uh, sacrifice zones. It's fascinating how there have been uh, developments here in, you know, in the United States where they put uh, uh, dirty, uh, you know, uh, recy- not recycling centers, but uh, landfills and things like that have been in areas that don't have political or monetary power. Gosh, isn't that interesting how that works? Hey. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a same old story, but uh, so in every one one has to wonder too. You know, there's always a a a, a political reality that applies everywhere. That's throw the bums out. You know, it's easy to misinterpret what, as you say, what might look like a pink wave or even a counter pink wave is just, as you say, a rage against incumbents. Throw the bums out. Uh, we've seen that a lot. That's a, a very standard uh, uh, procedure that, that, that happens. Uh, that sentiment, it motivates many elections here in the U.S. What about that? How much of a part of that do you think is going on? And how uh, might, might, might that lessen uh, uh, Petro's ability to, uh, to get things done and, and to, to be a real leader? And what opportunities does that present? Sure. So, yeah, it's uh, on the face of it, it looks as if, you know, the left is kind of on the march in Latin America. You have uh, obviously the the win by Lula in Brazil, um, and Petro and Marquez in Colombia, Boric in Chile, um, Castillo, at least temporarily in Peru. You have a sort of left government in Argentina, um, Xiomara Castro in Honduras. So, I mean, there there was on the face of it a second pink wave that, um, you know, that takes over after the pink wave of about a decade ago um, or more. Uh, but if you look a little bit more closely at the election results, number one, uh, it, the last 15 elections have not been pink or not pink. They've basically been anti-incumbent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whoever was in office, whoever, sure. it didn't matter, was was thrown out. And part of that is kind of the increased volatility of elections that we've seen in the last 20 years, mm. uh, especially with the advent of social media um, and kind of the volatility of public opinion. 
but also it has to do with the impact of globalization, uh, the fact that right. so many people have not seen um, the, any kind of economic benefits mm -hmm. from globalization. And uh, as a result, they've kind of taken their revenge against the parties that supported those policies of globalization, which more or less central left and center right parties. And so they have moved either to far right, supporting someone like, uh, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, or in a few cases around the world, supporting people who are further to the left or represent a complete alternative like Petro in Colombia. Um, so there is, there's that kind of volatility uh, that, that helps explain kind of the, the, the transformation. And then a second thing to note is that a number of the elections were extremely close. Yeah. So even though the elections overall have been volatile, that the, the uh, margins of victory have been have been very razor thin. So, for instance, in Brazil, mm -hmm. uh, everyone expected uh, Lula to win in the first round, but he didn't. Bolsonaro got just enough votes to to keep Lula from getting fifty percent. So they went to a second round, and everyone thought that oh well, okay. I mean, the second round Lula will really. Um, really kind of conquered mm -hmm. this guy and, and should have. I mean, Bolsonaro was yeah. actually had a terrible record as, as leader of Brazil. Yeah. And yet the margin of victory is less than 2%. Um, and, you know, uh, Petro didn't win by that much in Colombia. Boric didn't win by that much in Chile. So uh, that suggests that um, it doesn't really take that much to swing the election mm. uh, to the other side, and you know we're we're well aware of the kind of uh, incumbent fatigue that you see in politics <laughs> around the world. You know, it it doesn't matter really what an incumbent does; they're going to be blamed for whatever terrible things have happened over the course of their of their time in office. So, um, so that's why we can't sit back and say, "Oh, well, there's this pink wave; it will probably just continue." Um, no, probably not. Uh, and in Colombia, you know, that is going to be a challenge for, for Petro and Francia. They're going to have to do whatever they can now to institutionalize the changes. And that's very difficult to do. I mean, it's one thing to push them through. It's another thing to institutionalize them, to change the structures of government and economy so that it doesn't matter who is elected after them. That you know, the the basically the future of the country becomes path dependent. Uh, it it becomes kind of um, impossible in some sense for the country to move backwards to you know the fossil fuel approach you know that previous governments had taken, uh, and that it basically has to move towards sustainability. Um, now it could do so in a variety of different ways, yeah. but that that will be the trajectory. Uh, one way or another. Well, I, I wish I could remember the source of, of this quote about uh, the first election is one thing, but it's the second election that really counts to see if you can keep it going. Uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is John Pfeffer of, uh, of um, uh, Foreign Policy and Focus. And we're talking about uh, a new direction for Latin America and maybe the world. And what can the U.S. do to support this change, uh, a change toward uh, green policies that are sustainable. And as you mentioned, you know, I mean, neoliberalism, globalism, people don't like that. 
I don't like it. Nobody likes it except those that are profiting from it. And people are rejecting it, and they're moving to the right, to the left. I mean, a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump uh, rejected uh, uh, globalization. But it's like something that, and 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 in Hungary, you know, the the nationalism that we're seeing popping up all over the world. That's a big part of it as well, and it's kind of scary. It's an opportunity. It's a challenge. But uh, what are we going to do with that? And one of the things that's you know happening, there is this at least in theory, pink wave in Latin America. I mean, it's, it's done all right in, on, in Bolivia, I will say, despite U.S. efforts. But in Central America, all right, there's Honduras, there's Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. Uh, and your article mentions uh, some of those countries. And they're not part of any pink wave, never mind green, correct? What, what's going on there? Uh, well, I mean, one could argue that uh, Shiomara Castro's victory in, in Honduras was kind of part of a pink wave, although she doesn't Good. necessarily associate herself so strongly with left politics, but certainly a break with the right-wing politics that had dominated the country for the last years, uh, which included, of course, a, a right-wing coup. Um, but in the other countries, it's pretty clear-cut, um, unfortunately. Yeah. El Salvador, we have uh, uh, a leader, uh, Nayib Bukele, who had kind of come up through the ranks of the left, but then established himself again with a new party as something entirely different, uh, kind of a charismatic um, uh, right-wing populist who mm. has thrown an enormous number of people into jail, uh, 100,000 mm -hmm. people, highest mm -hmm. per capita incarceration rate in the world, and has kind of uh, tied his country's fortunes to bitcoins, um, mm -hmm. which has already lost the government, which followed his advice, of course, and invested large, uh, big time into, into bitcoin, has already lost it million, tens of millions of dollars. Um, and he, like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, has consolidated his power by basically uh, ex consolidating uh, his control over the executive branch, uh, basic the, the, the parliament as well, and even the judiciary. Um, so that's El Salvador. For um, Nicaragua, we of course have Daniel Ortega, who styles himself as a member of the left, but who has basically imprisoned enormous numbers of people on the left and the right and has ruled essentially like a dictator um, for mm -hmm. quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then in um, Guatemala, a right-wing sure. leader who will probably be replaced by an even more right-wing leader, uh, the daughter of the infamous Rios Montt, who presided over extraordinary death and destruction in, in Guatemala during yeah. his tenure. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough, but the, the, the challenges are there, and hopefully what we're talking about, that uh, he can do well, that they can do well, and show that there's another alternative. And people, I think, are looking very much for an alternative. And you know, I have to wonder about what the heck is going on in, in Peru. I was kind of hopeful when Pedro Castillo was elected, a, a uh, left-wing teacher from the working class, a, a left-wing guy. Then he got ousted, and people are uh, angry. They're out in the streets. Uh, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but maybe there's an opportunity there. I mean, you know, I know there's extractive capabilities there, but there's also 
I mean, Peru, let's face it, has a lot of tourism and, and a lot of uh, international interest. Uh, I, I wonder uh, if uh, Pedro, if uh, Pedro, Gustavo Petro is going to have any influence on uh, what goes on. And if the people in Peru, you know, who are really angry, will, will look to him if, if, if uh, you know, Gustavo Petro uh, and uh, Francie Marquez have any kind of a, a sway over the other countries that are going on as well. That's kind of an important factor. Well, before I, I talk a little bit about Peru and the kind of regional impact of uh, Petro and Mar Marquez, let me uh, mention that for a lot of people in the region, when you talk about alternatives, alternatives to neoliberalism you know, or, or alternatives to the dictatorial policies right. of their government, um, when they think about alternatives, the maiden alternative is to go to the United States. Um, and that has fueled an enormous amount of immigration uh, to yes, this country, yes. as well as asylum seeking, um, many of them coming from precisely those countries in Central America I mentioned before, uh, Nicaragua um, and Guatemala, yeah. uh, but also from Venezuela, huge uh, a kind of exodus, uh, millions of people leaving Venezuela, Venezuela, millions of people leaving uh, Cuba. Um, so that is the real challenge as far as I'm concerned, not only finding an alternative to the kind of failed economic and political policies, but finding a, uh, an alternative that is domestic <laughs> that people can kind of hold on to within their own countries and not feel like they have to leave their countries uh, for the uncertain really? future of the United States. Um, but turning to Peru, uh, you're right. Peru has an enormous amount of natural wealth. It has been, you know, its economy is, is, is really uh, founded on the export of, uh, of gold. It's the largest gold mm -hmm. producer region, uh, tin and, and other, you know, precious metals. Um, and uh, so whether you were talking about Castillo or, or others, it was basically the same kind of approach uh, economically to, mm -hmm. for, for Peru's future, although you had a far more kind of neoliberal um, uh, set of policies undertaken by previous administrations and what Castillo was imagining. But it wasn't economics that really got Castillo into trouble. Uh, it was his kind of uh, nonstop warfare with uh, the Peruvian Congress, which just... Um, Doesn't sound like uh, good politics. <laughs> yes, but it, it was almost turbocharged in Peru. I mean, Peru has, as a real history of um, polarization in its politics. Obviously, it's, it's had a number of its leaders um, thrown in jail or, uh, or almost thrown in jail. Obviously, Alberto Fujimori, um, Alan Garcia killed himself before he could be thrown in jail. Um, so you had a lot of kind of uh, political tumult in the country. And, uh, and so Castillo was not going to have an easy job one way or another, but he was definitely not a seasoned politician. I mean, as you said, uh, this guy's yeah. a guy comes from the countryside. He, he's not stupid. I mean, he's a smart guy, but he doesn't have 
uh, the kind of political wherewithal to survive. And I think yeah. out of the frustrations of dealing with Congress, he felt that he had to make uh-huh. a bolder move, uh, try to kind of consolidate more control in his own hands. Um, I mean, the other problem was his rule was rather erratic. I mean, we went through a lot of personnel changes. Uh, it was very hard to kind of figure out where the government was going uh, in terms of its policies. So there was a lot of frustration and anger. Now, uh, you throw a guy in jail, and uh, that is going to boost support for him in certain sectors of the country. So there were a lot of people, and there have been a lot of people, that have come out in support of him, uh, many probably who were not happy with him when he was uh, you know, uh, leading the country, but are now flocking to his side because he has uh, been incarcerated. Um, It's hard to know, you know, what will happen in Peru, but certainly if another model emerges that is successful, that is tested, you know, uh, that says, look, you don't have to depend on oil, tourism uh, is uh, tourism plus, um, you know, clean energy production, um, plus organic agriculture, you know, here are the building blocks of a successful economic model. Yeah, that could be influential across the region. And, you know, so that's that's really what's on uh, Petro and, front, and Marquez's shoulders right now. Uh-huh. And, you know, they have one term. Uh, oh. In Colombia, you can only run for, uh, you can only serve one term. You can't even do so non-consecutively, <laughs> which is kind of a challenge. Oh um, so, of course, you could have, you know, your your allies, uh, you know, sure. run for the next election. But, but they themselves, uh, they have this four-year period wow. to do what they can do, uh, which is to kind of not only establish a, a model that is successful for Colombia, but one we hope that could serve as a model for other countries in the region. Well, let's hope so. And I, and Utah must be fascinating, I must say, to cover all those countries and the development that's going on down there, and people don't know about it. And that's kind of, it's there's a lot going on there, and it's really important. For those who may have just tuned in, John Pfeffer is the guest on uh, Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about uh, new policies, uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia, uh, Francia Marquez in leading the way for a new green policy. And I was pleased to read uh, yesterday about uh, the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization, which brings together uh, the various countries that make up the Amazon. And they're what they're going to focus on when they meet together uh, later this year is new policies of combating deforestation, protecting indigenous people, and development with the aim of strengthening uh, position in front of international organizations, i.e. money, and developed countries, which are the ones most pressing for action in the region. And there's also, in, in Europe, uh, there's something called, uh, as you point out, European countries are pulling together to fight climate change with something called the European Green Deal. There's still a lot of work to be done there. And that you're suggesting that Washington needs to do, attempt to do the same in Latin America. And that sounds like an opportunity which reminds me of one of my favorite presidents, good neighbor policy. So the question is, what can we here in the United States do? Well, that is a big question. I mean, right now, 
the Biden administration, of course, is preoccupied with events elsewhere in the world, um, obviously putting a lot of attention um, into the war in Ukraine, uh, trying to uh, contain China um, uh-huh. with various means um, in a kind of a transatlantic battle with the EU over um trade and subsidies. Uh, So there's a lot going on. Um, And uh, it's true that the administration announced that it was going to increase the amount of money that it was going to send to Latin America as a region to something like $2.4 billion. And that's more than it was providing, you know, over the last decade or so. But $2.4 billion is not a lot of money when you Compare it to, you know, the three or four billion dollars we send to Egypt alone or Israel alone in terms of military assistance, or the thirty billion dollars in military assistance uh, we're sending to Ukraine. So you can imagine, folks in Latin America are like, well, hmm, yeah, what about us? Uh, <laughs> we're getting pennies, and you know, you've talked about the need to kind of. Uh, uh, stop the immigration flow. Sure. We've talked about the need to kind of stop uh, narco trafficking. You're worried about crime, organized crime. There are a lot of concerns the United States has uh, with respect to Latin America, but you're really not putting uh, your money where your mouth is in terms of, of actual programs. So, uh, you know, back in uh, the years leading up to World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced a good neighbor policy toward Latin America. And it was real break with uh, previous U.S. positions, which was basically uh, if the U.S. didn't like a government, it went down and deposed it, yeah. it sent its troops. It you know, was, was very violent in its uh, interventions in Latin America, treated Latin America as its own backyard. Yes. Uh, the good neighbor policy emphasized, you know, um, uh, trade, emphasize the sovereignty of the countries in the region. Um, and it really kind of very influential in terms of transforming U.S. policy. Um, didn't completely transform it, as we know, but it was an effort. And, you know, I think the Biden administration has an opportunity here to basically revive that policy, but with a kind of green covering. Um, in other words, uh, Latin America is engaged in its own clean energy transformation. It is currently um, Mm. uh, putting online uh, more solar and wind power generation than all the European Union is, which is kind of remarkable. I mean, because we think of European Union as being the leader of, uh, you know, in terms of capacity for for solar and wind. But no, Latin America is actually putting online Mm -hmm. much more um, now, it's concentrated in, in about six countries. Um, so, you know, countries like Mexico and Brazil uh, and Colombia. Uh, so there's a divide in Latin America between those countries that have the wherewithal to kind of uh, to transform the energy infrastructure and those countries which simply don't, don't have the money or perhaps in some cases don't have any interest in doing so. Uh, but here the Biden administration can step in and say, look, we will uh, basically create uh, a different kind of approach towards Latin America, different from what we have had in the past, but also different from China, which Mm -hmm. has emphasized, again, the extraction of commodities. We, the United States, will help you in Latin America 
become greener. Um, we will help finance, you know, green energy projects. We will um, help you uh, with new technologies, um, and we're we're going to do so basically for the same self-interested reasons sure. that FDR, you know, instituted the good neighbor policy. We're going to do so because it means, you know, you will buy our products and we will have preferential access to uh, what you are producing. Um, so, you know, greater trade, greater uh, engagement with the region. And it's, it's not, uh, you know, just, just, being nice guys, it is in our interest, and it works better than building a stupid wall. You know, if people people should be enabled to stay in their homes, to get them to leave their homes, it's got to be really awful situations. And to make it better there, to give some, dare I say, hope, uh, that works a heck of a lot better. And the U.S. has the power to do that. Um, so... There's questions like, is there anybody in Congress who's talking about this stuff? And and what about, you know, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund? They have huge debts to pay down there. As you say, like 30% of their revenue is, is paying debts. And canceling a debt may sound unrealistic and Pollyanna-ish, altruism, but it might be in our interest. What can we do? Are there leaders in Congress, and is the World Bank, are those are the money lenders getting this? How it's uh, it would be in their interest to cancel the debt? Well, Congress is, uh, shall we say, not exactly at the forefront yeah. of these conversations. Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of people, mostly in the Progressive Caucus, who are asking questions about what our Kind of uh, environmental policies are what our policies are toward um, what are known as critical minerals, which would include uh, lithium, for uh -huh. instance, rare earth elements. Um, so they're asking those questions, um, but there hasn't been a lot yeah. of movement, unfortunately. Uh, perhaps ironically, there's more movement, I would say, in the international financial institutions uh -huh. who have really some of them, or at least some of the people within those organizations have uh, really thought a lot about how to uh, advance uh, these questions of um, of clean energy and clean energy technology and uh, and developing instruments as they call them to help countries um, you know make this transition uh, sometimes those are uh, you know debt for climate swaps or uh, mm -hmm. You know, debt for uh, loss and damage uh, payment swaps. Uh, in other words, taking the debt that countries have and transforming them, restructuring them to allow countries to write them off in exchange for um, domestic oh, programs designed to improve the country's uh, clean energy infrastructure. So th those are on the books. Those are sometimes being used, but you know, it's really going to require a much more concerted effort by the richer countries along with the international financial institutions um, to draw down that debt. Um, and in some cases, and they're never going to call it canceling the debt because that's just, it's uh, the language is, I think, too radical for them. But uh, drawing it down to such an extent or restructuring it so radically that it basically amounts to a kind of cancellation. Um, and that's the only way we're going to get out of this. I mean, we're, we're at the moment kind of in a looming debt crisis uh, mm. with 
a lot of countries around the world facing the similar problems. Um, and uh, we haven't kind of come out of the COVID era yet with an, uh, uh, a new way of dealing with debt. We had the COVID period. We had some debt restructuring that took place before COVID hit. Uh, but we really need at this point something that is uh, a green restructuring at, at, a, at a huge scale to deal with uh, the current debt problems countries face. And there really are opportunities here. And and I keep coming back to the statement when you're in a hole, stop digging. We've been digging. We, the world, has been digging for a long, long time and keeping, you know, this loop going, doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, we can't expect different results. We have to make some changes on it. And it's it's so great to hear about these brave new leaders in uh, in Colombia, of all places, uh, Gustavo Petro and uh, Francia Marquez, talking about uh, moving from, from pink to green and, and uh, starting to take advantage of, of, of opportunities, building electrical supply for the region, uh, helping them grow. So many opportunities here. And uh, well, we got to pay attention to that. And, and, you know, people, citizens oftentimes think we don't have any power to do anything. We do have power. If we speak out, if we write letters to the editor, if we call our members of Congress, uh, it, it absolutely can make a difference. Always good to talk to you, John Pfeffer. If people want to follow your work, uh, what website uh, can you point us to? Well, they can always go to Foreign Policy and Focus, FPIF.org, or they can go to my website, johnpfeffer.com. Thank you so much, and it's, it's good to hear good news for a change. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.